Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Paul is continuing to explain, toward the end of this chapter, what growth looks like in the life of a Christian. How the process of change works. If we have, in fact, been saved by this amazing and wonderful grace of Jesus that we've been singing about this morning, then we will be changed and transformed by that same grace. We've most recently seen here in Galatians, uh, Paul has given us two lists. They're lists of evidence. The first list was a list of evidence that you don't belong to the Father that you haven't, in fact, been saved by the grace of Jesus. That first list, the list of the works of the flesh, we saw that the ongoing, uncontested presence of those things in your life proves that you don't really belong to Him. Now, again, that's not saying that anyone who has ever done any of those things on that list is not a Christian, but it is saying that if those things, if, if the works of the flesh are the consistent pattern and practice of your life, then they seriously diminish the validity of whatever it is that you say or profess about your relationship to Jesus. The second list is a list of evidence that you do belong to the Father. That you have, in fact, been saved by the amazing and wonderful grace of Jesus. And so that list, the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, if you remember from last week in the singular, if you've been saved by the grace of Jesus, then you have His Spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of you, and it's the Spirit's job to battle against the flesh and the desires of the flesh, and to produce in you fruit, fruit that is pleasing to the Father. And so, we should expect that if you've been saved by Jesus, you will be changed and transformed bit by bit, slowly but surely, there will be less and less of the presence of list one in your life and more and more of the presence of list two in your life. That's what, that's what growth in the Christian life looks like. Or, to use a theological term, maybe you've heard the word sanctification. That's what we're talking about here. The growth that occurs in the life of the Christian. And so part as Presbyterians, part of our our doctrinal standards. It's a great summary of questions and answers that help uh, flesh out what it is that we believe the Scriptures teach. There's a question about sanctification, and it's gold. It is so good. I think it's question 36, if I got the number right. But here's how it describes sanctification, this process of growth in the Christian life. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's not your work. It's the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. In other words, as God's grace changes and transforms us, we're more able to say no to list one, and we're more and more able to say yes to the things associated with list two. 
And so where we are today in chapter 5, three more verses to look at. And Paul shows us just a little bit more of what it means and looks like to say no to sin more often and to say yes to a whole new set of desires. And so once again, I'm going to read the larger context and then we'll dig into our three verses this morning. So stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the gift of your grace that it is. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you help us to understand it. You open our eyes to the truths therein. You show us how these truths all point to Christ, to his complete and finished work in our place. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do just that this morning? Would you do your job? Would you show us Jesus and all that he's fulfilled for us? Would you grant to us the faith that we need to rest in that, to trust it, to believe that it's all we could ever need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So these last three verses, 24 through 26, raise a couple of questions in my mind and lead us to an interesting application. You've got an outline in your worship folder. So we're talking about crucifying the flesh. Here are the two questions. Who is it that's doing the crucifying. It's important that we consider that. Second question is just what does that mean even to, what does it mean to have a crucified flesh? What does that look like? What is it? What is it not? And then finally, an interesting, I think, way to apply all this uh, of accomplishing something that sounds quite negative, but doing it in a way that is actually quite positive. So let's begin in verse 24 with this concept of those who belong, right? Because remember, we had these two lists of evidence, a list of evidence that you don't belong to the Father, and then a list of evidence that you do. And so right here in the beginning, Paul is saying the defining characteristic of those who do belong is that their flesh has been crucified. So look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, This is not the first time that Paul has mentioned crucifixion in this letter. 
Back in Galatians 2.20, very famous verse, one of the most famous verses in the whole letter, uh, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now that one sounds like the crucifixion is something that was done to us. That sounds passive, okay? something that happened to us. But the one today in verse 24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Well, that sounds a little more active. That sounds a little more like something maybe we have done. And how we look at this really affects our understanding and our application of this verse. Now, many teach that crucifying the flesh is something that we do. Something that we're commanded to do even. That we take our flesh, that we take its associated desires which are evil, and we nail it to the cross. So just to put my cards right there out on the table, I don't believe that. I don't don't get that from the whole of Scripture. And I I don't really even get that from this verse here in in Galatians chapter 5. Now, I, I grant on one hand that 524 does sound more active than 220. Right? But it's also in the past tense. Right? So even if it was us who has crucified the flesh, which I don't think it is, but even if it was, this is something Paul is mentioning that has happened in the past. And he's not giving this as a command for the present. Okay? Those who belong have crucified. Okay? Calvin doesn't buy this either. So I took a little reassurance when I read his comments on this. He says, that work, speaking of crucifying the flesh, that work doesn't belong to man. It's the Spirit's work. Now, is this a big deal? Is this question of who does the crucifying, is that a big deal? Um, I think that it is a big deal because it's just another way of asking this age-old question about growing as a Christian, right? When it comes to talking about growth as a Christian, the age-old question or pair of questions is, what's my part and what's God's part, right? What role do I play in my growth? What do I contribute? What do I control? What do I put in? And what part is simply left to God? What is his part alone to do? So do I have to do anything to grow and change and be transformed, or does it just happen to me? Is my cooperation and effort required? And so that's really the big question at the heart of this. And before we can address that big question, we've got to look at part two and see what exactly is this that we're talking about? Crucified flesh. What does that even mean? And so I think probably the best way that we can understand what's going on here in Galatians is to look to another passage that Paul has written about this, which is Romans 6. So the whole of Romans 6 would be a great parallel chapter for you to read along with this. But for the sake of time, I've just selected a few verses that I think speak to what's going on here with the crucifixion of our flesh. So in Romans 6, uh, first verses 6 and 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. I hope you hear all those echoes of everything that we've looked at so far in Galatians. That is just full and rich of echoes of what we've already looked at in Galatians. Now look down to verse 11. So you also must consider. And so go ahead and write that word in your notes, consider. This is huge because as, as we begin to talk in terms of what's our part, what's God's part, this considering is like the number one thing on the list of what we are required to do. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Again, just echo after echo after echo. Now, these verses in Romans, together with everything that we've already seen in Galatians and what we find today, give us a really robust picture of what it means for the flesh to be crucified. And so I just want to give you a bullet list here uh, of several different ways to think about it. This is a, an analogy, if you will, and it's got tons of layers to it, tons of different ways that we can think about this. So uh, first off, the flesh has not yet totally been destroyed. And we, we've talked about this a little bit before. The battle still rages. Spirit and flesh are still in there duking it out and will until the last day. Right? So the flesh has been crucified. That's a mortal wound. Right? So the flesh is dying, but it's not dead yet. It is a certain but a lingering death. Right? He's, flesh is on the deathbed. We are anticipating any day now that sucker is going to die, and he just keeps hanging on. A certain but lingering death. Here's the big thing. The flesh has been defeated decisively, conclusively, irreversibly defeated. He no longer has power or dominion in or over our lives. Now, we've talked about before, he still has influence. He still has influence, but he does not have that power that he once did. Now, as question one still rolls around in your mind, who's doing the crucifying? Trying to figure out what's our part, what's God's part. I want to point you to another verse. Some of you, if you know your Bibles really well, you, you, it's already been rolling around in the back of your mind thinking, oh, wait a minute, I think we are supposed to do the crucifying. Because you're thinking about Romans 8.13. Okay. Another place where Paul is, is writing about the flesh, it comes up so often. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so there's some activity here. There's some activity. There's a verb. We're the subject, right? You put to death, right? But notice at the beginning, right? How do we do it? Say it with me. Anybody? By the Spirit, right? Those are the words that come before the you doing anything, right? By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the flesh. So, so I grant, 
I grant that we do have a role to play in this. We do have a part. Our growth as Christians is not a spectator event. It is not a passive thing where we sit back in our easy chair and we wait for God to zap us into holiness and righteousness. So what is the crucifixion of the flesh? What is meant by putting to death the deeds of the body? Right? Does that mean that we just need to be really hard on ourselves? Very strict, very disciplined. Self-flagellation. We should live ascetic lifestyles, very austere and, and severe. Or is crucifying the flesh like Nancy Reagan and just saying no? Right? Is, is that, does that what crucify the flesh? Just say no. Is it to simply stop doing the things that you're not supposed to do? Stop it, stop it, stop it. Is that me crucifying my flesh? Will that kill the desire inside of me? No. But see, all of those things, they sound like possibilities because they sound kind of harsh and negative, and that's what crucifixion sounds like, is harsh and negative. And frankly, it is. But here's the surprising thing to me. And here's the reason I think that verse 25 comes after 24, aside from basic math. right? It, it's that we actually accomplish the negative positively. And what in the world does that mean? Right? Either Paul is abruptly changing topics between 24 and 25, or he's making a connection we need to see. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so uh, two, two ideas there, living by the Spirit and keeping in step. Those two sound kind of similar. Are, are these two ways of saying the same thing or is there a difference? I think there's a difference. And I think the first part there has to do with the source of, of our life and of our living, right? If we live, right? Do you currently live? Are you currently alive and living, right? If we live by the Spirit, right? If He is the reason that we live, if His work of rebirth and renewal where our dead heart was removed and our blind eyes were uncovered and opened so that we were able to see both our need for salvation and also the gracious provision for that salvation in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, right? then that's how we got our start. That's how our life began. That's how we live is by the Spirit and what he's done. Right? And so Paul's already mentioned that to the Galatians earlier on in this letter, Galatians 3.3, 3, one of the parts where he is just beside himself and just cannot figure out why they're doing what they're doing. But he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to finish in some other way? Right? So Paul's saying, you live by the Spirit. That's the source. That's the beginning of your life. But what about your current, present, day-to-day -day living? Are you still walking in the same way you began? Right? He got you started. Does he keep you going? Some of your translations, I think the King James, might have walk again here in verse 25 instead of keep in step with. Right? If you live by the Spirit, let us also walk with the Spirit. 
And, and there, it's a basic word for walk, but we had walk back in 516, right? Walk by the Spirit, and that's just the general every day we're walking. We're putting one foot in front of the other. But verse 25 here, it's a more technical term. It actually has a military connotation. It's of walking with someone, stepping together, left, 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 right, left. That's what's in view here. That's what our ongoing life with the Spirit looks like. And that picture of being in sync with someone else, taking steps together, is what's in view here. It reminds me, I was actually looking again yesterday at the the Congaree National Park uh, website because everybody's waiting. Any day now, this event is going to start happening again with the, the synchronous fireflies. It's one of the few places in the world uh, where these fireflies, their flashing is synchronized. And it happens between like 9 and 10 o'clock at night. And it's the, if you've never been, it's, I've not been to the, this event, but to Congaree National Park, it's amazing anyway. But between 9 and 10 o'clock at night, and they're waiting. Any day now, they think that it's going to start. It's late May to mid-June when it happens for a couple of weeks. One of the only places in the world where it happens, and they're, they're in sync. They're all flashing together, and it lights up the whole forest. I was thinking about that when thinking about being in step, being in sync, walking, keeping in step with the Spirit. A step together and a step together and a step together. And I think that helps also make a little bit of sense of 26. So, So 24 and 25, do those really go together? That seems a little weird. Well, what about 25 and then all of a sudden 26 comes in, right? Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another? That seems kind of random. But I don't think that it is. I don't think that it is. I think that this is something we're keeping in step with the Spirit, of course, has a personal, individual benefit if I am keeping in step with the Spirit, but I think it also has a corporate benefit as well. And so there's probably something specific to the Galatians that prompted Paul to write 26 where he did because that church was riddled with a lot of discord and disunity. But I think there's a general principle here for us as well. There is a unity pictured here that will naturally happen if each individual member of the community is keeping in step with the Spirit, then what does that necessarily mean? that all the individuals are now in step with each other. If we are all in step with the same Spirit, we are by necessity in step with one another. And so when we hear folks talk about and pray for and ask about unity in the body, which is a great desire, right? the only real meaningful way to accomplish that is through our individual unity with the Spirit. That's what we really ought to be praying for and praying about. So let me recap this for us and make this connection with accomplishing the negative positively. Paul's got two big concepts here in these few verses. Number one is crucifixion of the flesh, and number two is keeping in step with the Spirit, continuing to live in the same way that you began to live. So number one sounds kind of negative, number two sounds kind of positive. And I think that these two are not just connected, but that number two is the way that number one happens. This thing that sounds so negative, crucifying the flesh, 
actually gets accomplished through something quite positive. And here's what I mean by that. When we hear crucify the flesh, put it to death, we think naturally in terms of violence. We think, all right, we'll stab it, stomp it. That's what our instinct is. And as it very often is, our instinct is wrong. Because the death that's called for here is not one of brute force, of stabbing it, but of starving it. It's what the Puritan William Ames called the wasting away of sin. Let's take all of sin's food and let's give it to something else. Let's not give those sinful desires any more food, any more sustenance, any more care. Let's take all that and let's give it to a different desire, another passion. We will never succeed at trying to stamp out our passions and desires. It won't work. If we try to become desireless and passionless, we will never succeed. God has made us and created us as people full of passion and full of desire. See, it's not an eradication of desire that is called for, but a redirection of that desire. See, the, the big question for you and I to consider is not, all right, what are the things that I'm doing wrong, and let me try to stop doing those things. The big question to consider is, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? What am I trying to get out of doing these things? How am I trying to satisfy my deepest longings by doing that? Am am I searching for some type of approval or significance or security or comfort? or What is it that I'm trying to get out of that over there? That's the question to begin asking and to begin addressing. Why do I think I so desperately have to have this thing over here? And this is exactly where the positive process of keeping in step with the Spirit comes into play. See, it's the Spirit's job as He battles the flesh to the death, He forms in us new passions, new desires, that line up with his passions and desires. Remember, the Spirit's got some desires. We saw that back in verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So we need to remember, all right, who is the Spirit? And what types of things would the Spirit desire? What would his desires be like? We've already seen, can't rehash it all this morning, the Spirit's desire who he is, what he does, is to magnify and glorify Jesus. To take all that he's done and and put it on a, a high pedestal for all to see and glory in and revel in and be astounded by. That's the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work is to remind us that we've been adopted by the Father because of the finished work of the Son. And so here comes back to that verb consider that we saw in Romans 8.13. Consider 
sisters and brothers, what He's done, who He's made you to be, that He's caused you to be dead to sin but alive to Him. And so He forms in us new desires and new passions that are in line with His to make much of Jesus, to make much of what Jesus has done for Jesus' worth and His beauty and glory to be on display. And see, what happens is those new, powerful desires and passions, they push out the old desires of the flesh. There's no room. They get crowded out. They get starved out. See, that's how the flesh gets crucified. Not through violence. Not through grit and determination. But it gets starved. It's no longer being fed or cared about, and it's slow, lingering death continues. Let me tell you one of the biggest ways that the Spirit does this work of forming new passions and new desires is through our worship. It's through our worship. As we come and we're reminded, as we celebrate, as we glory in, as we sing all these songs that we've sung this morning, and that we'll continue to sing. As we're glorying in the finished work of Jesus and all that He's done for us in our place. And we worship. And we worship until our hearts find Jesus more beautiful and more worthy than absolutely anything else. The better we're able to celebrate and rejoice in that beauty, the more it puts the old desires on the ropes. So no, the, the, the goal here is not to become repressed, depressed, passionless people. The goal is to become more passionate, more desirous and desiring of the most desirable one who's ever existed. That's what causes growth. And so even as we would think about coming to the table, uh, here's an opportunity for new passions and new desires to be strengthened. Here's an opportunity for us to consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider yourselves dead in the same way that our Savior was dead. He actually died. It wasn't just a deep sleep or slumber. He died. Consider yourselves that dead to sin and alive to Him in the newness of the life that He's given you. And this moment together, if you'll come with a believing heart, is a moment for those beliefs to be strengthened in your heart and in your mind. For those desires to be stirred up within you again. To see Him as beautiful and worthy. And for those other things to just sort of dim and fade. And what was it that I was wanting to do Anyway, I I can't quite remember. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, would you take uh, grape juice and gluten-free bread that came from Lidl, and would you do something supernatural with it? Would you grant to us, as a gift of your grace, would you grant to us faith? faith that we need to believe that Jesus will meet us here in this moment and that he will continue 
the ongoing lingering death of our flesh that the Spirit has started? And would He continue to revive within us new desires, new longings, new passions for Him? Jesus, would You come in this morning and reveal Your beauty, Your glory, Your worth, that us seeing that afresh latching onto it and considering it would mean further death to the works of the flesh, to the desires of the flesh that have been at work in our life. Oh, grant to us faith that we might come believingly and expectantly. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.